Good morning. Or should I say great morning? For today is the day that we are reminded that He is risen. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 24, verse 37 through 43, and Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. It reads, They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still not, did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Revelation 1, 17-18 When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is God's word. You may be seated. One of the things that uh, we're doing this month is we're using the, the men from our small groups uh, to lead worship. And uh, uh, today was, was Team Rodriguez. And we had all of, uh, not all of them, but a lot of the guys uh, from that particular small group uh, lead our worship this morning. And uh, you get to see some of these guys that, uh, that the, the, the Rodriguez's get to see in their home every week. And I'm really thankful that, uh, that they were willing to do this. Next week, I think it's, um, I think it's the Blankenship Antwine group that is next. But don't quote me on that. I may be wrong. I am getting a little bit older these days and uh, memory is not what it used to be. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful for the ways that you instruct our mind when it comes to your presence, and not just your presence, but your will, and not just your will, but how you would live us, how you would have us live in light of your presence and will in this world. And not only do you help us to understand that, but you empower us, Father, through your Spirit and Word to be able to become the kind of people that are able to live as a reflection of your presence, a Christ in us. We are grateful for that. And especially when we think about all of the details that you give us in your word that instruct our mind and heart about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, our hearts just overflow. And so we're grateful for this time in which we can press our mind into these texts that Stephen has read for us and to be brought closer to you by, by knowing, Father, the love you have for us. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to start by, we're going we're to do a church-wide experiment this morning. So what I would like for you to do, everybody, we need you to stand right now. Everybody, if you'll stand. And I want you to keep, you know, it'll, it'll only be about 10 seconds. But I want you to keep your eyes closed and keep them closed until I tell you to open them. And I want you to point to the north. Close your eyes. Point north. Okay, now open your eyes and look where everybody's pointing. <laughs> Apparently, we don't have any compasses around here. You may be seated. If you, if you look at a compass from where I'm standing, north is that direction right there. 
How many of you got that right? Hey, well done. We have some people that are not always lost in this city, which is an easy thing to do. But here's the thing. Sometimes you're so convinced that true north is this direction, but it's really that direction. Or somebody tries to tell you that it's that direction over there. But here's the thing about true north. It's always going to be that direction. Guess what? You may wake up one day and you may, you may be in a bad mood. True north, that direction. You may be traveling someplace and hear somebody talking and they're telling you true north is that direction. True north is always that direction. Now when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, knowing about the resurrection, that is a huge part of the Christian true north. And, and to enable us to understand it uh, in, in its meaning in greater detail this morning, I want to begin with this statement. It's up here on the screen. That statement says that the resurrection of Jesus is both a truth and a claim. Please write that down on your outline. The resurrection of Jesus is a truth and a claim. That is an incredibly important statement. Let me explain in just a couple of minutes. Many people like the truth of the resurrection. They like the idea of death being defeated. They like the idea of the truth of the resurrection, or better put, they like the optimism of the resurrection. And so we have this kind of optimism in the culture that we live in where people say, you know, I like it that dark goes to light. I like it to think that when we die, we're going to go to a better place. All dogs go to heaven. All cats well, everyone headed to a better place, even the cats. But the writers of the New Testament are never going to let you off the hook that easily. That the resurrection is nothing more than just a piece of optimism. What they say are things like this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we, what? Believe, let's say it together. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Paul is going to say the same thing to the church in Corinth, struggling with the resurrection. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Amen? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the Christian faith is... Um, a, a, a religion or a faith that is going to teach you your faith, the Bible. Um, teachers who are studied in the Christian faith are going to teach you how to live in the world. They're going to teach you how to have better relationships. The Bible is going to help us to understand how to manage our money, how to manage resources. The Bible helps us to deal with emotions, but Christianity is embedded in a fact and not just a philosophy. One of the, the great writers of our generation on the resurrection is a fellow by the name of N.T. Wright. Tom Wright says that during the time of the first century when Jesus lived, everybody in the world, everybody in the known world knew what resurrection meant in the ancient world. And what they understood the resurrection to mean was that the resurrection is not hitting death and bouncing back, but breaking through death to the other side. Every, everyone knew what the word resurrection meant, but, but they didn't believe it was possible. They knew what it meant. They didn't have to have it defined. 
They knew what it meant, but nobody believed that it would happen except one group, the Jews. And the Jews thought that it was going to be someplace in the future. But now you have these disciples in the upper room experiencing Jesus in the flesh. And later they would watch him in 40 days down the road. They would watch him ascend into heaven. The resurrection, the, the reality of it, explains why you have all of these different kinds of emotions described in the passage that Stephen just read for us. They're startled because if you read John's account of this, Jesus goes through the door, goes through the wall, and appears in their midst even though the door is locked. They're startled by that. And if somebody was, were to do that right now, we would be not just a little bit frightened. And they're troubled because it's not fitting into their worldview, even though he has taught them and taught them and taught them and taught them. The reality of it is now troubling them. But at the same time, there's a lot of joy because they're glad to see their friend. But at the same time, they're amazed. So startled, frightened, troubled, joy, amazement. And in verse 37, Jesus, knowing that, that uh, they thought that they saw a spirit, he says, look at my hands. Look at my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have what? Flesh and bones, as you see that I have. They still can't believe it. So Jesus asks a question. He says, do you guys have anything to eat? I always thought it was kind of a strange question. Whenever you got guys together, there's always food. And this is no exception. Do you have some food? They do. They give him a piece of a broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. A ghost does not say, touch me. A ghost doesn't say, give me something to eat. By definition, a ghost does not have flesh and blood. So what does the resurrection of Jesus mean to them and to us? Number one, the greatest search of all time is over. The greatest search of all time is over. If you lived on the eastern seaboard of the United States through the, 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 the Pilgrim's Landing all the way up to about the middle of the 18th century, you would have lived on that eastern seaboard. You would have known that there were lands to the west, but there was this impenetrable or what was thought to be an impenetrable mountain range that would separate the eastern seaboard from the western states. It was known as the Appalachian Mountains. And everybody thought that they, they were looking for a way through it. They couldn't find it. And then in 1750, there's a fellow by the name of Thomas Walker. He's a Virginian. He's a medical doctor. He's also an explorer. And he makes known what has come, uh, become known to us as the Cumberland Pass. The, the greatest, the most extensive and expensive search in all of history has been for the Cumberland Pass through death. One of my favorite poets, uh, uh, probably most famous as, as a, a metaphysical poet, uh, lived in the 17th, in fact, he died in the 17th century, about 1630-something. He's a fellow by the name of John Donne. And John Donne is, uh, is dying, and he's, he's, he's laying in bed, and uh, being a poet at heart, every experience he has is, is, is sort of fodder. It's fuel for a poem or something to write. 
And as he's, he's laying there, he recognizes that all of the doctors that are attending to him, as he's laying on the bed, they're looking at his body as if it's a map of the world, and they're trying to navigate it. And it, it inspired him to write a poem before he died that was entitled, um, A Hymn to God, My God in Sickness. And about a third of the way through the poem is a line after he's been describing what it's like to lie there and he knows that he's ill and that he is probably not going to make it out of this illness is to, and to see these doctors looking at his body as a map. He writes this line where he says, Enjoy amid these straits, I see my west. What Dunn recognized is that the resurrection for him was like that Cumberland Pass. And how the Cumberland Pass opened up those western states of those on the eastern seaboard. So the resurrection of Jesus and the work of Christ had turned these straits that he was in, in sickness and in pain, into a passageway to his west. In, in John 11, Lazarus has died. Jesus is on his way, but he has on purpose and with intent delayed in order for Lazarus to die. And as he approaches the town that they lived in, Bethany, Martha, sister of Mary, sister of Lazarus, Jesus, one of Jesus' beloved friends, she comes out to him and she says to him, if you had been here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know, I know, I know that, that he will rise again, the resurrection, on the last day. And Jesus looks at her and says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will, will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, Jesus is saying that the search for the way through death and for the resurrection is now over. Game over for death. I am the resurrection, he says to her. And, and Martha believes it. Now, there are some huge differences between Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and his own resurrection. Lazarus would die again. It was not a resurrection. Someone had to roll the stone back in order for Lazarus to be able to come out. When Mary and those first disciples encountered the empty tomb, on that first day of the week, the resurrection, the stone was rolled back for us to be able to enter in and to see that that tomb was empty. In John 11, Lazarus comes out and the grave clothes are still on him. When Jesus came out, his grave clothes were neatly folded where it had been. And a couple of chapters later in John chapter 14, Jesus knows that that death, his own death, his hour of glory is near. He knows that his disciples are troubled because he's been very explicit about it. And they're troubled and he knows that if he does not in this moment help them, they will be swept away. They will be overthrown if he does not help them. And Jesus says to them, I and the way, and the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father 
but through me. That sin that we all know that we are capable of, that, that fallenness, that human rebellion, that, that human guilt, these are the impenetrables for us to be able to break through that to get to God. What Jesus is saying is that I am your Cumberland Pass. Death now has a way through to the other side. And when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, death died. It was no longer going to be the master for those that would put their trust in the Christ. What Jesus did in the resurrection was to break the back of death and to pull all of its teeth out so it couldn't bite any longer. So the greatest search of all time is over with the resurrection, which means, number two, Christians can relax. Remember Aaron Rodgers a couple of years ago, the the Packers did not look like they were going to go very far. They were losing at the beginning of the season. Somebody questioned Rodgers in an interview, and he said, relax. That's what I want to say to the church. Christians can relax. In other words, a, a person of faith, a disciple of Jesus, somebody who is pattering their life, not just after the teaching, but by the very life of Christ, can live a life without regrets. The world says, Make the most of every opportunity. Grab gusto. Make every moment, every opportunity count. You only live once. The resurrection makes the words of Psalm 73 truer than true. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, God, I desire nothing on earth earth you know what the resurrection says easter says that through faith in christ you will live forever and not miss a single thing you'll miss nothing you can relax in fact it's one of the ways that you give it all away you can give it all away because you miss nothing and you gain everything because of the resurrection you, you know, I'd like to read C.S. Lewis. One of the great, great sermons that I've ever read was his sermon, The Weight of Glory. It's the title of a book in which that sermon is part of a collection of, of things that, that Lewis talked about. In that sermon, he says, the faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the world's are what we now call physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. What Lewis is saying, and I believe he's absolutely onto something, what he is saying is that the, the world is a place that is full of wonderful pleasures. Great barbecue. A Sprite with a cherry. A Hershey bar or M&M's. A, a, a beautiful vista. Those Texas roads with all those wildflowers. 
Lewis is saying that there's these wonderful pleasures in this world, and some of them are so powerful that they can actually do us harm because we're sort of unable, they're so powerful, to be able to control them. Think of addictions to pleasure or the weaknesses that, that we have of will in moments of temptation. But what Lewis is saying is that these pleasures, as great as they are, and as gripping and captivating as they are, are only a foreshadowing of the pleasures in heaven. A beautiful vista in this world that brings tears to your eyes. If we were to see that vista in heaven right now, it would blind us. A taste of great food, only a foreshadow of the taste of food at the great banquets of heaven. The best of friendships that, that, that we have right now, loyalty and love, knowing each other, and celebrating each other, serving each other. The best of friendships on earth right now looks weak and feeble compared to friendships in heaven. But we have to recognize that this is all because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. To go to another Lewis quote, it's known as the Lewis Trilemma. He writes in the book Mere Christianity that I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of that patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. If Christ has resurrected, then he is Lord. If Christ has resurrected, then he is Lord. Paul driving that fact home to the church in Rome. He says that he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. But you know that sounds so awful in our modern culture. I mean, who in a world that, that, that absolutely puts on a pedestal autonomy, self-direction, who wants to claim another one as Lord of our life? He is Lord. But what does that mean? What it means, simply, is that he is the only king. He is the only Lord who will not enslave you. You know what the irony of my own life 
is. You know, there was a time when I decided, hey, I can, I can live my life with the, the hands of management, my own hands on the management of the affairs of my world. I had my hands all over the steering wheel. And it was an awful kind of a life. And there was a moment in my life where I'm going down the highway at 130 miles an hour in the back seat, open containers, and I realized that if somebody just stepped out onto that road up there outside of D.C., a mile down the road, we were not going to be able to stop quick enough to be saved. I mean, that, that moment in my life was the turning point, and I realized that if something had happened, I'm not in any kind of a relationship in which any kind of a positive hope for my future was relevant or real. And that moment in my life becomes, for me, has been a metaphor for every human being that I have ever met. We think that we are free because we are the ones who are the captains of our own destiny. That illusion. But all we do is become enslaved to whatever it is that we're trying to cram in that God-shaped hole in our heart. That's all we're doing. It's just trying to cram something that is not God-shaped into the very God-shaped hole of our heart. And that's why, even though we're the Lord of our own life, we're still restless. And even though we're the Lord of our own life, we're still uneasy. And there's that being awake in the middle of the night and that sense of guilt because we know deep down when we're honest and truthful with ourselves that we're not all that great. And that we have, if we're honest... We have great capacity to do harm to other people. That's why one of the most revolutionizing things that could ever happen to your life is in the humility of that moment. Recognize that Jesus is Lord. When you think about every other king, every other Lord that's ever been, they use you and want you to die for them. Jesus is the only Lord who's willing to die for you. He's the only Lord that was willing to take on your penalty, your sins, your guilt, all of your offenses, not only the things that you have done and the things that you're doing, but the things that you will ever do to pay the penalty for that. In order, in order, for you to find life, a different kind of life. We talk about the cross. We talk about the resurrection of Jesus. I believe it to be true. Absolutely. Stake all of my life on it. But the question that I'm always moved by is why would he do it? Why would he do it? Love. Love is one reason. Love. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that says for the joy that was set before him came to earth lived as a man endured the cross endured the shame for the joy set before him i mean he is god he created everything what is there in heaven that is lacking in joy what is the joy that, would, that, that he wants, that he desires, that he's willing to die for. What is that joy that causes him to, to, to do what he did on the cross and to go through that death, burial, and resurrection? What is it? What is that joy? It's us. 
It's us. The one thing that heaven did not have were God's children. That is the joy. That is the joy that it wasn't, it wasn't the nails, it wasn't the Roman legion. He could come down any time off of that cross. What was it that kept him on that cross? It was you and me and the love for us and the joy that gives him. He endured the cross and all of its shame. In order for him to become the Lord of our life, the king of our life, in such a way that we find this, this freedom and blessedness that there is nothing on earth can match. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front, and maybe you've been thinking that today's the day that I need to figure out what the gospel is all about. I need to figure out what, what, what it means to become a child of God, a son, a daughter of God. I've got to figure that out. Today can be the day. It is about recognizing Him as Lord. And the flip side of that is recognizing through repentance that you're not the Lord of your life any longer, that He is Lord. It's about saying, yes, I, rec I recognize in me is the sin that put Him on the cross. And I need to be cleansed of that. The Bible talks about it as, as uh, putting your trust in Christ and, and participating with Him through baptism in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And being raised to newness of life. And sharing in that life, His Spirit inside of you. Recognizing, recognizing that you need that help to be conformed to the image of Jesus in all that you do. If that describes you this morning, come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and we praise God together. Low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting the Domain, and he lives forever with